Hello, this is George Silbergeld. How are you doing? Good, how are you doing? All right. I won't keep you that long, but I want to say it's an honor to have you on the show here. I hope sure. what I'm doing today introduces you to a lot more people. Um, today I'm talking with Daniel Greenfield, who is, in my mind, the most important um, political, cultural commentator today, if that's the right term for someone like you. Um, I just went over several of your uh, articles, talks, and I basically said that you have information that I don't see coming from anywhere else, like the information about Kamala Harris and how her background and how she, well she lives, and also insights that I don't see anywhere else. Uh, I spend a lot of time looking at articles on our culture and in uh, <clears throat> our politics, and I just don't find that. I wanted to start out in a corny way by asking you, how the heck did you get into this business? I mean, no one grows up saying, I think I'd like to be a leading commentator. Not so much, no. Certainly it was not my life plan. However, um, I used to be a New Yorker. I was um, near downtown when um, September 11th attacks happened. And, you know, a lot of people try to get involved in their own way. I got in, tried to get involved in my own way by writing. This was not a career. This was not meant to be a profession. But at the same time, at some point, there are just about five or six years in of just um, blocking relentlessly. At some point, I was asked to do articles. I've been uh, reprinted for quite a while by that point. And, you know, at some point, you bow to the inevitable that this is now what you're doing. All right, that, that sounds like a good way to do that sort of thing. And you found that you could actually earn a living in this area. Um, thankfully, yes. Um, okay. So All right. Um, I'm able to do a full-time. Okay. Um, I'm wondering, uh, I spend a lot of time reading articles, books, things like that, but I, I often don't come up with things such as uh, the cost of uh, <coughs> Kamala Harris's new home, um, ex the the committee, the job she was giving, which I consider kind of a fake job for retiring politicians. And uh, how did you find out how much uh, she makes at that job, how often she was absent, 20%? These strike me as policies you'd have to ruffle through her papers or something to get. So I can't take credit for all of that. The information um, about her past has already been um, well documented. Um, it was public information for quite a while, and obviously there's a certain amount of outrage because this is the Roy Brown administration. The Roy Brown administration was notoriously corrupt, so people were looking through all this paperwork. Uh, really, the thing about Kamala Harris, um, a lot of what she'd been doing had been very thoroughly gone over in the past, and uh, the media had covered her extensively. And now they've kind of switched to disavowing it and claiming that it's a right-wing conspiracy theory, <laughs> but they would be able to say, for example, um, she got a BMW from um, Lloyd Brown. She got this and this from Lloyd Brown. All this was well known. All right. But you, you do the digging yourself? Uh, well, there are things where I have actually turned up information. There are other areas where I'm relying on other journalists. That's oh, kind okay. of how it is. You right. um, stand on the shoulders of giants or at the very least of your peers. Yes, yes, okay. Um, you have I insights that I know I don't hear elsewhere. Uh, do you think that's because of your 
past education or just growing up in New York or what? Um, well, I like think everybody has certain insights of their own that are unique to them. At the same time, uh, my profile is not typical for conservative journalism. Uh, my worldview isn't typical for conservative journalism, so I think that brings things to the table, and I try to look at things that occasionally not everybody else is digging into, and sometimes it yields interesting results, other times it doesn't, but that's part of the process. Do you think your past Jewish education had anything to do with this? Well, Jewish education is meant to promote a certain kind of uh, digging for insight, yeah. um, perseverance, intellectual um, gamesmanship, so I think there's probably an aspect of it. Okay. When I read a column by you, or read a speech by you, my first uh, thing I think about is, damn, how do I get this guy better well-known? I, I don't know if this little effort here will do that much, but how could someone like yourself become better known uh, so that th they wouldn't just repeat the information that comes on CNN or even the better um, places like, um, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a real clear politics or something like that. How could someone like yourself become even better well-known? What I write is ultimately meant to be used. It's meant for people to read, to pass on, to incorporate into uh, their own discussions. It's not so much about promoting me. It's about promoting the ideas that I'm actually trying to put out there. So when I dig up information, uh, when I uh, find another way of looking at something, it's with the hope that people will find it useful. People will be able to uh, use that in arguments and discussions and conversations and so on and so forth. Um, one of the things I daydream about is that I'd have a television show, uh, not on CNN, but somewhere out there, and uh, that I would have guests like you. Have you been invited on to various television shows um, in the past? Occasionally, obviously, it's far too, as far when we talk about television, it's pretty much going to be Fox News. Yeah, okay. I was just wondering if... Uh, if something like that became available, you would be willing to go on such a show? Uh, uh, I'm certainly happy to go on shows. I've been on a number of shows. I've been on Fox News. I've been on a conservative uh, Canadian cable network that yeah. failed. I've been on um, I-24, which is an Israeli thing. And I've done plenty of interviews. I do plenty of interviews again because I try to get these ideas out there. Well, you know, when I look at some uh, CNN, for example, that repeats itself, I don't know how many times a day, um, I certainly think there's room out there to do something like that. Let me ask you, I'm, one of the things, I'm, I've been a professor most of my life now, I'm retired, uh, but uh, I am particularly interested in what's going on on college campuses. And one thing that puzzles me is that the, there are a lot of people disappointed with what's going on on college campuses. It isn't just conservative. It's, I think anyone would have a brain. And yet it marches on and on and on without, relentlessly. It's like a flood, a tsunami. Today I learned that political science, where I was, and one of the areas least affected by political correctness, has made a complete turnaround 
and they appointed nine out of the 12 um, overseers of their most important journal are women who have come out and said we're going to have a lot more race, class, gender uh, article-oriented articles. So I found that very discouraging. I wonder if you have any ideas about why this, this obvious nonsense this uh, program that, that doesn't, never mind politics, if you send your kid to school to get a liberal arts education and they come back, you know, having English courses taught by some silly people, um, they're angry too. Why has it been so impossible to stop? Back in the day, Marxists would view everything through the lens of class warfare. Uh, everything was about the relationship between capital and labor, between um, the oppressed workers and the capitalist exploiters. And then at some point, the American industry was doing well enough, they abandoned the um, working class and then started to view everything through the lens of race, through the lens of gender, through the lens of identity politics in the broader sense. Um, so everything is viewed through that lens. When you have people on the far left taking over, um, this is the first thing they impose, and they call it diversity, they call it um, uh, various ways of um, broadening our world and understanding other people and remedying injustice and all that, but at the end of the day, everything has to be viewed through the lens of identity politics. That lens says that America is an oppressive society, that all existing institutions are um, built based on uh, white supremacism and white nationalism and all that sort of thing, which at this point they define as any kind of normative um, pre-existing institution, and they insist, of course, in remedying it by introducing more of the voices of uh, diverse um, colored people, indigenous people, all those uh, terms. People of color, I'm sorry, the correct fashionable okay, term is okay, people but of color. I can people. see why a um, mid-level university would give in to this, but schools like Harvard, uh, I went to Rutgers, which was a pretty good school. And they given the Rutgers has the famous Professor Puar, who wrote the book and lectures on how Jews in the Middle East are stealing body parts from Palestinians. I mean, these it is just an absurdity. And yet, when she was attacked, and people found out what was going on, within four days a thousand professors in the country signed a petition that you know nothing bad should happen to her and and the president of the university said she's a world-class scholar we're very proud of her why why give in to someone like that i mean they're 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 fascist in my opinion but they're very short fascists well, you kind of really described it. They are very, very, very well organized, very well integrated. Uh, the moment anything happens, they can organize a petition of a thousand professors um, who on the right can do that, who for that matter on the moderate or on the liberal side can do that. That's the bottom line here. They are very well organized, and, you know, it goes well beyond petitions. It goes into securing academic posts. It goes into reshaping entire fields. At this point, every field that is not really scientifically objective has already been taken over by these people, um, and even the uh, STEM fields are being increasingly taken over um, and infiltrated. So the reality is it's much like in the um, early part of the 20th century, where you did have a very organized, very aggressive movement of Marxists, of leftists, who were very insistent on reshaping every academic discipline to reflect uh, their worldview. I, I thought that if you could get hold of uh, some politicians, especially state ones, and make this issue into a political issue, 
it might be very helpful, and that is you, can, you could campaign on reforming higher education and demand that, let us say, to the core curriculum be clean. The core curriculum would emphasize Western civilization, fundamental skills, and you could demand that, that the college would have to go along with this idea of choice, and that if someone like you or I were in charge, we would pick professors who would be objective, who would be uh, semi-sane. Do you think something like that could be done? These battles have been fought for a while at this point. They're being just fought even at the elementary school level where all this is um, infiltrating very much. Uh, my own organization, the David Harwood Freedom Center, has been working on some more things. They, be, they began with the Academic Bill of Rights, and now at this point the situation is bad enough that they're doing a K-12 um, Bill of Rights just to actually give students the right to express opposing ideas within the classroom and to prevent uh, teachers and professors from basically um, taking positions on issues that are... Um, in uh, political platforms or that are in the coming elections because you actually have teachers uh, forcing students to do campaign work. That's how, again, that's how bad it's gotten. Well, I see from time to time uh, people make an effort, and there are some minor successes, I guess. I don't know if you follow the events at the University of Nebraska, but a local uh, statewide politician or two um, uh, asked the question, is no one in the English department interested in English? And of course, they, he was called all sorts of names and things like that. Um, the further, he didn't get that far, but there are people in the country who recognize this, and uh, I have thought I'd like to uh, get involved in that little area. Uh, if I did, um, I don't know, I'll talk to you more about it, but could I put your name on the... Uh, letterhead or something like that that the people like you support such an effort sure of course okay all right you um are you at all optimistic do you see any light coming out through the curtain uh, there's certainly reason to be optimistic that said as far as the um, state of academia goes it is becoming more and more radicalized at the same time there is um, a growing pushback um, among liberals among conservatives um, dealing with this situation, and you have various challenges to identity politics, and those challenges are being slapped down um, increasingly ruthlessly. So you have the case, for example, of um, Bogosian, who actually was one of the, uh, he was the only one who actually had an academic post, and um, he was, he, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the case. No, who is this now? So uh, one of the things they did was lampoon a lot of the identity politics um, journals. So oh. they published hoax articles oh, uh, yes, satirizing yes, them. Yes. yes, but the people, the most recent people that did that, they, they might not end up with getting jobs or tenure. Uh, yes, well, the, so the, um, the one of the, um, Bogosian actually had an academic position, is actually being sanctioned by his college claiming that by actually pulling the hoax, he violated human rights. So <laughs> that's, that's the kind of situation we're dealing with. They are shameless, and I think we've been trying to act toward them as if they have a, an, somewhere inside of them some reasonableness, some uh, kindness, some... Uh, some respect, and they have none. And you look at like uh, four people, really three, of uh, AOC and people and Omar. That out of thin air, they've created a movement. 
And uh, I, is that because the media will back them up? Yes, it's not thin air because, again, the media is there, and this is just part of the infrastructure. It appears like these people come out of nowhere. They're coming out of an organized and very well-funded movement um, and that has complete media backing because the media will back anybody that goes further to the left. Yes, yes. Um, I, I'm just amazed at this sort of thing. But I was thinking someone was telling me that if they can do it, maybe we can do it. But I, I don't know if that's possible without having any media on your side other than uh, Fox News and uh, Limbo and people like that. Oh, again, we have to figure out in ways of bypassing the media. The Internet was successful at that. Unfortunately, yeah. the Internet is, is being censored. Uh, one of the major issues that began happening after Trump's election was that you had increasing crackdown on the media to supposedly fight disinformation on social media, that is. Yeah, I see. Which pressure on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Google, which they ultimately went along with to censor conservative sites. Well, one thing, uh, yes, I see Mr. Horowitz is in trouble every other week because of that and uh i didn't think they'd have the nerve to go after someone is uh, like that but they do they're, they're not afraid of anyone um i i think uh i wonder if there's not some sort of opening for us on youtube do you think or do you YouTube think google yeah but you think they'll end up censoring as well uh okay well um I, I I don't know. I'm just stunned by the speed at which this happened. Um, usually it takes a little build-up. But on the other hand, we could view this as just an extension of Marxism. Marxism, in a sense, failed, uh, let us say, but it, it still rolls on uh, like a mighty river. Um, I'm also thinking of having a... Um, a get-together where I would organize the publicity and say things that are loud enough so that we could alert people to what is going on and make a, de a demand, a specific demand, which usually hasn't been done. I've been to so many conferences. I don't know if you know Warren uh, Threadgold. He wrote a book that got us some publicity, The University We Need. And uh, he's a genuine scholar, and he wrote a book. Uh, and I, we, I spoke to him a couple of times, and he's very pessimistic. He thinks we're just going to have to go through this the way that people went through the Dark Ages and uh, wait on the other side. I, I hate to think that he's right on that. Do you think he is? Um, no, I don't think we can afford to wait. That said, I think academia, as it is, the entire water infrastructure, the mandate four-year and increasingly six-year education um, is collapsing. It's economically unsustainable. You've got Elizabeth Warren and uh, Bernie Sanders coming in with uh, free college for all plans. That's how economically unsustainable it is. Institutional debt and student debt, particularly graduate student debt, um, are sky high. Uh, this entire business model made absolutely no sense. Uh, just briefly speaking, uh, we're talking about a system that was set up really to educate the children of the wealthy. It makes absolutely no sense in uh, modern terms. It certainly makes no sense as an educational system meant for 40, 50, 60 percent of the country. So I think the push that we're going to be seeing increasingly is basically to um, bypass the conventional kind of college that we have now. But how do we guarantee that as the thing shrinks, as it surely will? Um, and they get into all sorts of financial difficulty, which they surely will. How do we work so as to use that as a wedge 
to get into higher education and transform what is still going to be left after all this is said and done? Well, again, there are better alternatives increasingly, including online education. The entire structure really makes no sense when conservatives start having these debates instead of really um, arguing about who should be paying for college. We should be having a debate about whether um, there is any need for anybody to be paying for college, period, because the bottom line is academia has been largely infiltrated, and in no small part it's been infiltrated because we ballooned college enrollment. We created uh, an entire marketplace for useless and nonsensical degrees. Um, Again, this is a huge part of the problem. You have people coming in to get degrees in identity politics studies. This creates an identity politics faculty, and all this is funded by taxpayer money, by taxpayer aid. We should not be subsidizing it. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, there's another area that might be available. I don't know if you're familiar with that, uh, Marcus. I forgot his first name now. He is now the head of the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Education. Now, for years, we tried to get them to step up to the plate, and they didn't. Marcus is more than willing, but he uh, he's faced with a problem. According to him, the real problem is not enough Jews complain, not enough Jews go to the federal government and say, look at what's going on here, what's going on there. They get about 10,000 complaints a year, and only 1% is Jews complaining. And, and a lot of my relatives are very good complainers. So I think there might be a kind of an opening there if we can get more people to step up to the plate. And at the very least, we'd get some publicity. Um, well, in the past, uh, people didn't complain because there was really no use to it if you look at actions. Basically, even when you had blatantly discriminatory behavior, no action was taken. Now that you actually do have um, a government agency that is now interested in following these types of cases up, and he is uh, following up cases, particularly at Rutgers, uh, there might be actual change happening, and you might actually have people coming forward. When there's no reason for people to come forward, you're not going to have... Um, enough complaints. Yeah, well, I I hope you're right. The governor of New Jersey is an intelligent, I hope, reasonable person. And he wants something from Jews. He wants uh, the the Israelis to set up some sort of research center here. And um, uh, certainly he would be embarrassed by, you know, if anyone said that you're not uh, objective and reasonable and friendly to Jews. the, the problem here in New Jersey is that the Department of Higher Education is a nothing department. And Christine Todd Whitman eliminated the department on, and saved $3. And now they have people who basically don't know that much and certainly don't do very much. But it, it might be possible. I, I'm going to take your view as my view that there are cracks in the window and that um, if people like yourself keep going on, and even people like at my level, see if if we can get something done, because it is, I keep thinking this is the world's largest, the emperor has no clothes situation, Um, but so far I haven't located the little boy who tells the world about that, although you are doing a very, very good job. I want to thank you for providing me with some time to talk to you plainly. Uh, I appreciate it very much, and I will certainly continue to uh, make your views available. I would like to do more and more 
podcast, not, not necessarily with you, I know you're busy, but uh, telling people about the essence of what you say in your various articles. I hope that's okay with you. I don't think I'm... That's great. I mean, we're all fighting this good fight together. We're all sharing ideas and information. That sounds like a great idea. I wish you the best of luck, and thank you for some interesting questions and discussion topics. Thank you very much. We will talk to you in the future, I hope. Bye now. Bye.